Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, the new head of a nonprofit aiming to use the arts to help kids on his vision for the future. And a bill moving through the state legislature would lift cruising bans, and lowrider fans are happy about it. But first, it is deja vu at the state capitol this week as lawmakers advanced multiple hardline immigration bills yesterday that are drawing comparisons to Arizona's controversial immigration law of years past, SB 1070. The 2010 law resulted in massive protests and boycotts of our state, and another version of it was recently signed into law in Texas. KJZZ's Wayne Shutsky was at the Capitol yesterday as all the action took place, and he is here now to tell us more. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. Okay, so there are several measures in here that are being called these hardline immigration measures. First of all, just tell us what's on the table. So uh, a a bill from Senator Janae Champ passed along party lines out of the Arizona Senate yesterday. It would essentially make it a state crime to cross the border illegally uh, from Mexico into Arizona, already a federal crime. But what Republicans are arguing is the federal government has failed to do its duty to secure the border. So this would empower local and state law enforcement to essentially enforce those laws. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there is some debate over that. As you mentioned, a similar law passed in Texas, and uh, they're currently in in court with the Biden administration, who argues it is the federal government's job to do that work, not the state. Two similar bills uh, went through procedural votes in the House and are scheduled to go to full votes today and will likely pass as well. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the debate at the Capitol yesterday. Um, as you mentioned, this is sort of hearkening back to SB 1070. They're not exactly the same, but the idea is, is essentially that immigration is supposed to fall under federal law and not state law. Yeah. So Democrats basically argue this is a retread. This is SB 1072.0, as they're calling it, um, which was partially overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court over those issues of federal uh, federal federal government's duty to enforce immigration law, not the state government's duty. So that's what Democrats said. They, they brought up that point. They brought up that they believe that SB 1070 was used to disproportionately um, police specific groups and led to racial profiling. Uh, mm-hmm. One senator, Rosanna Gabaldon, shared her own experience with that, saying she was pulled over, I believe she said, 10 times within a very short period of time after that law went into effect. Um, and also that it's going to hurt the state's economy. Back when SB 1070 passed, we saw boycotts. We saw national groups decide they didn't want to come here. Um, and some estimates said we lost hundreds of millions of dollars from the tourism industry. Yeah. So they kind of hit it from all of those angles. What does the governor had to say about these bills? Uh, she's going to veto them. <laughs> Long story short, she doesn't support them like her Democratic colleagues in the legislature. And and she doesn't believe this is the right approach. She agrees the federal government has failed to do its yeah. duty. She doesn't agree that this is the right approach to solve that problem. OK, but there is another proposal from House Speaker Republican Ben Toma that he's calling one of the toughest anti-illegal immigration laws ever written. This would bypass the governor? Yes, this is a, it would be a resolution. So essentially, if passed by the House, by the chambers at the legislature, would go directly to voters and they would have the final say about whether it becomes law and not the governor. And what his would do, uh, whereas these other bills are are criminalizing crossing the border, this these, this bill would seek to make it more difficult for folks who cross the border illegally to work in the state, receive welfare type benefits, or get licenses from from organizations. Essentially, it's strengthening existing laws requiring that employers run um, 
employees through the E-Verify, the federal E-Verify system that yeah. ensures they're in this country legally by um, extending that to cities and towns for things like welfare benefits, like I said, licenses and uh, putting some heftier fines and potential uh, prison sentences on the line for uh employers who break or knowingly help people break that E-Verify law. Wow. Okay. Toma pulled the resolution from a vote yesterday. Why? Yes, it was scheduled to go through one of those procedural votes before a final vote yesterday. He said there were some concerns that uh, a provision of it uh, dealing with independent contractors, some folks interpreted it that it would require a business that hires an independent contractor to then ensure that all of that independent contractor's employees are run through the E-Verify system. He said that wasn't it wasn't intended to be that burdensome and mm-hmm. untenable, so they wanted to clear up that language to make sure that it was very clear what they were intending to do with the law. It looks like it's scheduled to go to a vote today. Today. Okay. Let's take a few minutes now to talk about another bill making its way through the state legislature. This is HB 2735. This has to do with the continuing fallout from the University of Arizona's massive budget shortfall that they're still grappling with there. The university announced a few months ago that it had sort of miscalculated. It's now facing a, a you know, $177 million dollar budget shortfall. Um, what are lawmakers, what are they saying about this? There's now a bill sort of taking aim at the way they run things. Yeah, Republican um, Representative Travis Grantham is running this bill. He essentially said down at U of A there were too many cooks in the kitchen. He said they're using this shared governance model where not just the this, uh, university's president, but faculty, maybe student groups, all these other stakeholders have real input um, into how money is spent, how um, resources are allocated, that kind of thing. And he says that's basically not the way it should be. It mm-hmm. should all, the buck should stop with the president. These folks can have input, but they shouldn't be the ones steering the ship when it comes to how these resources are spent. He said uh, ASU, for example, does a better job at that, he thinks. Michael Crow, uh, of of kind of being the, the last guy who really puts the stamp of approval on how this money is spent. He says U of A has gotten away from that over a succession of presidents. And he so what this bill would require is essentially that the presidents cannot delegate those duties to other groups. Mm. So this is all about this idea of shared governance at the universities. The Union of University Workers is speaking out against this. They're upset. What do they have to say? So basically the exact opposite, that <laughs> that, that shared governance is a good thing, that there shouldn't be this one person who's um, kind of shutting out all the other voices in the room and that um, the faculty, for example, who are represented by this union really should have a say in how different resources are spent, how curriculum is developed, that kind of thing. Um, I, I will say that the law, the law, if it passes in a law, wouldn't uh, take them out of the room completely. It just kind of changes to them being like, consulting on the process versus being actual decision makers in the process. So this gives university presidents a lot more power, it sounds like. It, it, According to Grantham, it just clarifies the power they're already supposed to be having. According mm-hmm. to him, the state law already really says they should be acting in this way, and the shared governance model kind of skirts around that. And so he's saying this is just clarifying how they should have been operating and how someone like Michael Crow is already operating. Mm-hmm. One other little provision in there would also give ABOR direct access to university finances, which instead of having a presentation from the university later on after this money spent, it would uh, essentially give them access to just be able to go in and see what the universities are doing with their money. And what's the timeline on this one, Wayne? Uh, this is uh, – it, it's passed through committee. It, it still has to go through a full vote in the House. I will say Travis Grantham, he's a part of leadership in the House. He's he's very close with Speaker Ben Tomu, who determines which bills are heard. So there's a good chance this is this is going to get a vote on the floor. All right. Well, see more of what comes on all of this. Soon, that is KJZZ's Wayne Shutsky with our politics desk joining us with more. Wayne, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Former President Trump over the weekend announced the launch of a new sneaker. Speaking at a sneaker convention in Philadelphia, Trump unveiled the Never Surrender High Top sneaker. They're gold with American flag designs around the back and a capital letter T on the side. The shoes sell for $399 a pair and have sold out. Around 1,000 were available. With me to talk about these sneakers is Luis Torres, editor-in-chief at Nice Kicks. Luis, good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Going all right. So just from a purely, like, aesthetic design perspective, what do you make of these? Uh, personally, I'm not a fan. It's a little too uh, gaudy for my liking. Um, but, you know, there's something for everyone when it comes to sneakers. Not a fan of the gold, huh? Not not too much gold. I like a little bit. So who do you think these sneakers are appealing to? I mean, obviously, there's all sorts of designs, all sorts of brands for all sorts of, uh, to use the phrase, sneakerheads. Like, who, who do you think is these are going to appeal to? Uh, definitely not sneakerheads. I think this is more for one for Trump's fan base, if anything. Um, and secondly, I think it's just a way for, you know, tr- Trump to get some extra money, following, uh, you know, following the, the lawsuit that, you know, just kind of came down on. Well, so why, why do you think sneakerheads won't be into these? Um, I think lately, especially, you know, in the last few years, we've seen in the pandemic, at least from a sneaker community perspective, um, the industry has kind of gotten exploited in a lot of ways. And this is just for some sneakerheads, just a latest example of people trying to capitalize on something that was, you know, like very niche and and very integral to community and has now become mainstream in so many ways. We've seen both athletes and non-athletes get into this. Um, Have we seen politicians get into the, the sneaker game before? Um, I remember there might have been like a small local politician that made some, you know, Blue Lives Matter uh, related sneakers. Mm. Um, But to this magnitude, no, absolutely not. Have we seen instances in the past where there's sort of an intersection of of sneaker culture and politics, though? Like, I I think back to the the uh, what was called the Betsy Ross flag shoe that uh, Colin Kaepernick was involved in that Nike ended up pulling when he objected to it. Yeah, uh, that's probably the the most poignant uh, moment, I think, for a lot of sneakerheads. I mean, for some members in the sneaker community, um, that was like, hey, like, you know, Kaepernick was right. Some people were like, well, politics and sneakers should have mixed to begin with. And some people were saying, you know, well, it's just honoring American history, American heritage. um, Let the sneaker drop. But I mean, this is, you know, obviously when it comes to the Trump, uh, the conversation, conversation kind of just steered a little bit given just. I mean, that, that's a president, um, former president, you know, so yeah. there's just a lot that, that goes into that um, as well. I mean, is it the kind of thing that that folks in the sneaker community would like to keep politics out of it? Is there a way to even keep politics out of, you know, even something that seems so apolitical as footwear? Um, I mean, every, in, in my opinion, I think everything's political. Um, I, I think it's really hard from an industry perspective to not have politics. Um, especially we see Nike and even Adidas be very vocal about social justice issues in some way, shape or form. So I don't think you can really separate the two in, in certain capacities. But, um, you know, I, I think there is, is a way to mix it. I, but it, again, I think really what's more bothersome to a lot of people in the sneaker community is that it's just another example of exploitation of an industry that was very much um, revered as like not cool, not hip, not commonplace you know like people couldn't go into into clubs and nightclubs with sneakers and now it's like well you have a former president watching his own former his own shoe so yeah um, who, who are we really trying to alienate or who are we really trying to include 
So we've seen that these sneakers, as I mentioned, they sold out to the, the 1,000 were available for presale. We're seeing them sell for quite a bit of money on, on the resale market. Would you expect that to continue, that these are going to go on, on the resale market for far more than people originally bought them for? Um, I, it'll depend on a few factors. Obviously, with it being a pre-order, you know, the shoes are technically still being made. Um, depends who's making them, the quality of them, because I don't know if they're actually look that golden. Um, you know, when they actually arrive, who knows? Because uh, pre-order can get can get tricky. Because even you know, there's a disclaimer on the Trump side, like the shoe might not actually look like this when you receive it. Mm. Um, and I know there are a few autograph pairs that I'm sure you know account for some limited, you know, uh, limitedness of the shoe, and will create more demand and hype for it. But um, I, I, I mean, anything's possible. I mean, we see Stanley Cups reselling. <laughs> um, for a certain moment in time so i you know this the sneaker game like anything else is all just a commodification you know so yeah any, anything's possible all right so just a couple minutes left i want to ask you about another new shoe that uh, was released to the public recently that is uh phoenix sun star devin booker and these two sold out uh what do you, what do you make of these ones um I, i'm a big fan of them obviously i'm biased i'm a, I'm a phoenix you know native born and raised so yeah. uh, i'm a big Suns fan so and i'm just happy for booker because um you know i've interviewed him when you know he wasn't really getting the shine like that back in the day and now kind of see him having some shoots very well deserved in my opinion is it surprising they sold as well as they did given that while he was a he is a huge star here in phoenix and sort of around the region like nationally, he, you know, he's not one of the top five or maybe even the 10 most well-known NBA players. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting seeing, you know, the because the, when we post about the shoe on, on social media, you know, you're going to have two sides of the coin always at play. Um, so we've seen that firsthand. But to see it sell out, I mean, at the end of the day, the basketball consumer and the, and the signature shoe space has really kind of been... Um, it hasn't been what it once was. Um, mm-hmm. So people are looking for something new and refreshing. And, you know, whether you look at, you know, the Adidas AE1 with Anthony Edwards and, you know, the book one, which are very polar opposite in design, they definitely appeal to a more um, younger demographic in two different ways. Interesting. All right. That is Luis Torres, editor-in-chief at Nice Kicks. Luis, thanks as always for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Appreciate you all. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Arizona lawmakers could follow in the way of California if they pass a bill that would end local bans on cruising. State lawmakers advanced the bill late last month and lowrider enthusiasts are happy about it. They say there aren't that many places left in the valley where you can cruise and it's hurting their culture and community. California lifted bans on cruising last year. When the bill was heard in committee at the state legislature last Last month, one lawmaker harkened back to when cruising was popular on Central Avenue in Phoenix and said there was smoking and trash and cars driving so slow that they were impeding traffic. But Rick Ruiz says they know they need to police their own. He's the vice president of the Sophisticated Few Car Club and has been in the low-riding community here for decades. I spoke with him more about it. Well, Sophisticated Few was founded in 1974. It was uh, founded by seven of the original members that are still showing to this day. Uh, We have some active members that have been showing their showcase cars for 50 years now. Started out in uh, South Phoenix, and we've expanded throughout the Southwest, Texas, Los Angeles, 
uh, Utah. We have chapters in uh, Australia and the United Kingdom as well. Wow. Wow. Okay. So this is a big club. Um, tell me about you a little bit as well. Like, what is it that you love about lowriders, about the club, and about this culture in particular? Well, the the thing that I love most about lowriding is is being able to spend the time with my friends and family that I'm involved with in the club. Uh, we're all close knit. We all help take care of each other, and we're we're trying to pass this dying culture onto our family. You know, trying to pass it down from generation to generation so that we can keep it alive. Do your kids do this? Are they into it? Uh, my son is not into it, but my grandson, um, he's taken the reins with me and he goes with me to the shows. Uh, you'll, you'll be seeing a picture of one of his bikes mm -hmm. that we just had in the Arizona super show this past weekend. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been around doing this a long time. Um, and you talk about family here. One of the only things that comes to mind for a lot of us, I think when we talk about cruising or lowriders is like this idea that, that one time back in the day, there used to be people cruising on central. Do you have memories of that? Were you part of that? Oh yes. I, <laughs> I have very vivid memories of when I was a child, being able to cruise central with my parents. Hmm. My mom had a low rider when I was young. And that was kind of what sparked the fire inside of me to be able to continue that. And then as a teenager, I was able to cruise central for a little while until I left to go to the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. And then when I came back, it was all gone. There was yeah. no more cruising in Phoenix. So, right. So tell us what these no cruising laws like mean for you, for the club, for this culture. I mean, have you ever gotten in conflicts with law enforcement over this? Unfortunately, yes. Um, it, it's not just narrowed to cruising. You know, us driving our lowriders just out in the regular street going from, you know, our house to an event. A lot of times we get stereotyped and get pulled over, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, it's normally not until... They, I pull out my driver's license and they see veteran on the bottom of it that they leave me alone. It, it's been like this for for quite a while now. So there's a bill introduced now in the state legislature here that, that could change that and do away with these no cruising laws. What would that mean for you? You know, uh, for us and our families, it gives us a weekend outing to be able to go out on a Saturday morning or a Saturday evening and take our kids out with our families and and our friends in the car club and just enjoy an evening of cruising around in your car, you know, and, and, and just promoting brotherhood. Do you think that there's like a, a misunderstanding of this culture? Some of the criticisms that even came out in the hearing of this at the state legislature from some lawmakers were that, you know, when cruising was allowed, you'd have trash, you'd have smoking, you'd have people impeding traffic. What, what's your reaction to those kind of criticisms? You know, my wholehearted belief in this is that they are stereotyping all of us with the 2% that is bad. Mm. You know, just everybody has that, you know, you go to uh, NFL football games and there's issues there. But what we try to do is we try and police our own when we do these cruises. We try and police our own by cleaning up our messes, you know, um, promoting a peaceful and family safe environment for all of us to cruise and enjoy and, and, you know, just being able to go out and enjoy these cars, you know, seeing all the different types of paint jobs that are on the cars and the artistry that has been involved in them. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we don't try and block the roads. You know, we try and get these guys out of the road. Hey, get out of the intersection. We're not trying to block any traffic because we know once we do, it is closed down mm -hmm. and we got nowhere else to go. So we try and we definitely try and police our own so that we, we can continue to cruise. Yeah. How many cities do you know around the valley have these no cruising laws? Like, uh, are there places you, you can go and, and still do cruise today? Uh, the only city right now that does not have any cruising bans is Glendale. Hmm. Um, Tolleson has an active no cruising ban. Uh, there's a no cruising ban over by Metro Center, Central Avenue, from downtown all the way to South Phoenix. There's signs posted throughout no cruising, as well as Mill Avenue. So let me ask you then, if this law is successful and, and passes through and is signed by the governor, which is a long way off, I realize, I mean, where, what would you do? Like, where would you cruise first if you were allowed to? <laughs> I would cruise downtown Phoenix. It's just awesome when you're going down Central Avenue and you got the, the big buildings up with all the mirrors on the sides and you're seeing your car and as you're passing, people are giving you a thumbs up and waving to you. There's no feeling like that. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Rick Ruiz, vice president of the Sophisticated Few Car Club, joining us to talk about cruising and lowriders here in the Valley. Rick, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate you reaching out. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. An Arizona nonprofit that aims to use the arts to help kids who've undergone trauma has a new leader. Matt Sandoval took over recently as executive director of Free Arts for Abused Children of Arizona, which he describes as being about transforming kids' trauma into resilience through the arts. He says the group served more than 7,000 kids, generally between the ages of 5 and 26, in 2022, and more than that last year. Sandoval stopped by the studio recently to talk about the group and his new position in it, and we started with the role of the arts in helping kids who've gone through trauma. Yeah, the, uh, the arts are an important tool in that it does a couple things. When we think about what impacts toxic stress. At the end of the day, it's relationship. We all experience that when we have stressful moments. Some self-awareness, our connection to other people are all things that help us. We think about the safe person I want to talk to, unload, talk about my experiences with. Arts are a tool to really expand relationship in a couple ways, right? So when we are doing something creative, we're tapping into a view of self that is unique. We are in a sense, developing our relationship with what's inside us, thoughts, feelings, things that we're afraid of, things that we're thinking, things that we hope for. And then any type of art that is shared is instantly causing us to connect to others. And so there's a self-expression component of arts that are unique around helping children that have been through the experiences that are common among those that we're serving. Do you find that you are able to learn things about some of those kids through the art that they make that maybe you wouldn't learn about them through, you know, reading their case file or talking to them? Sure. And our mode there is to go as far and as deep as a child would like to go. And so there are children and teens, young adults involved in our programming that do creative work and don't dig deeply into their personal story. And for many, it's front of mind. It's something they're actively processing. So we take things one step at a time. And for some, they're ready to explore that. They'll do that through poetry, writing, performance development, 
Um, for many, it's just the experience of working with people that are caring for them, giving them the chance to try something new, to not fail. We say all the time there are no mistakes in art. And that is the opportunity itself for them to experience some form of healing, which for us, healing means return to well-being. Yeah, I wonder if in some cases the the kids with whom you're working maybe learn about themselves through the art that they make or figure stuff out or, or help process what they've been through, process their experience through the art that they're doing with you. Yes, and there are moments where it is clear in the art, right? It might have a dark tone. There might be some... Uh, language and images related to the things they've experienced, again, as far as they're ready and willing to process. Um, And then there are moments where the focus is on what I accomplish, what connection means to me, Hmm. what my new definition of family might be. And that's an important thing uh, to think about our connections for the children that we're serving is somewhere in their experience, an important, often um, assumed relationship with an adult has not been productive, has not been safe. And that level of risk when we're young, at any point in our life, it's it's actually a, a stressful experience. But particularly when we're young, um, it's an overwhelming experience. So now that you are in charge of this organization, I'm curious about your vision for it. Like, are there things that you would like to do or a direction you'd like to take this organization that, that would be different than what it's done in the past? Yeah, we're um, we're in the middle of a statewide um, expansion, which is coming from our 10-year uh, strategic vision. And so there are elements of that that we've achieved right in the middle of that 10 years was the pandemic, which put a lot of things on the back burner. Yeah. When I think about a couple things we'd like to accomplish in the next couple of years, the near future, um, expanding our services throughout Arizona is uh, is front and center. Beyond just the Phoenix area. Yeah, we're really heavily in Maricopa County. And most recently, within the last few months, we've started to work in and around Prescott and Yavapai County. We also would love to move up even further north to the Flagstaff areas, including tribal communities as well, um, as well as southern Arizona So statewide expansion is number one. And then two, I think there's really something unique and special about free arts, not just because I work there. um, But when you talk about child welfare, child development, child well-being, you'll get people in the community excited. You'll get people raising money. And when you talk about the arts, you'll get the same experience. But then we, because of our model, have put these two awesome things together. And really, the interest in that is exponential because it's drawing in two communities that are very passionate about their issue. And so what we'd like to do at Free Arts is center us as a convener of learning around what helps children, um, both in child welfare, overall child well-being, uh, with this particular lens of creativity and art but underneath that, those are tools to to building relationship. And so mentorship is at the heart of what we do. And so you know, if you snapped our fingers three to five years in the future, we'd be statewide and we'd be convening learning through symposium, modeling, training opportunities. And then we'd love to partner with those outside of Arizona who'd like to do similar things. So you mentioned that the, the adults in this program try to take – Things with the, the kids as far as the kids want to go. You don't mm-hmm. really push too much. I'm curious how that works in terms of if you find a child who is really, through their art, maybe expressing some things that 
like and maybe on a consistent level, a consistent basis that, you know, it seems like might be ripe for conversation. Like, is there more of like a traditional talk therapy component that you're able to offer? Like, how, how do you, I guess, how do you take it beyond the art if a, if a child seems like they are looking to move beyond that? Yeah, great question, because there's always a sense of needing to assess what the capacity is around someone with strong feelings, if there's any history of self-harm. Um, those things are are really present realities for children that we're serving. And so to state up front, where we serve is we're training volunteer mentors. So we're operating subclinically in space where children often have access to and are already being treated in some formal way. Okay, um, But there are moments where we realize that we have been triggered. Uh, our bodies are very powerful mechanisms for monitoring our environment in children – in this situation, teens in this situation often have very good reasons to be monitoring the safety of their environment. And so in the moment, we give a lot of space and thought toward having a trauma-informed approach, which is knowing, recognizing the reality of trauma, its impact, its manifestation of behavior and thinking patterns, but also giving space when needed to calm down, to do what's safe, to do what is the next logical step that will help someone feel connected to the programming. So we're not forcing anyone to go anywhere deeper. If things are hard, we'll take a break. We'll practice deep breathing. We'll do some self-directed activity. Um, and then in the situations where things are more um, severe, maybe critical, we'll engage the partner agency, the guardian. Um, we will do assessments for safety um, briefly with our clinical director and team um, to help us be able to point a child in a safe direction and collect those resources there. But for all intents and purposes, the children coming to us already have a network of mental health services available to them. We also know that sometimes this adult in this moment is the time in which someone is sharing something important. Sure. All right. That is Matt Sandoval, Executive Director of Free Arts for Abused Children of Arizona. Matt, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Love it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Spring may not officially start for nearly another month, but here in the Valley, it certainly feels like spring is in the air. Temperatures are in the 70s, the sun is out, spring training baseball is about to start, and if you have a garden or a plant on the windowsill, things look like they're starting to grow. So here with her seasonal gardening tips is master gardener and educator Melissa Cruz-Peoples. She manages the garden at ASU's Polytechnic Campus, helps the university with urban garden education and outreach, and teaches classes on how to garden in Zone 9B. That is apparently Phoenix, Arizona. Good morning, mm-hmm. Melissa. Good morning, Lauren. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for coming in. Okay, so first of all, what are you planting right now? So with the warming up of the temperatures, it's time to plant all those warm season things that love um, long days and lots of heat. So uh, first up, I want to do all the tomatoes, um, peppers, eggplants. Um, those are kind of take a while to get going. It takes a couple months for to get to a size to put on all the fruit. Um, and I love planting summer squash, like zucchini and yellow squash, um, uh, basil, and of course, always the flowers. Mm. Um, can't have enough flowers in the garden. So sunflowers, zinnias, marigolds um, to bring bring all the pollinators and beneficial insects. That sounds um, very springy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What about what's harvesting right now? Yeah, so we're kind of at the tail end of our cool season uh, gardening. So 
lots of carrots, uh, leafy greens are finishing up like spinach and lettuce and kale, um, uh, lots of broccoli, cauliflower, cabbages that we planted way back in October. Um, mm-hmm. I've been harvesting over the last few weeks of those things. Uh, some of that survives the heat a little better and can last until April. Um, but some things are more uh, sensitive to the heat, like lettuce in particular. Um, is It's time to harvest and eat it and, and move on to the next. And move season. on to the next. I yeah. always wonder this, like when you're planting for a new season like you are now, like are you taking everything out, turning over the garden, putting in the good dirt, all that kind of stuff and planting again? Or do you do it sort of piecemeal? Um, I kind of do a piecemeal. It's it's nice to think about a plan, <laughs> which can be hard. You sort of when there's nothing in the garden, you put stuff everywhere. But thinking about a plan, and so where I um, have done my lettuce that's gone now um, is ready for the tomatoes. But some of my uh, cauliflower um, and cabbage takes a little bit longer, and so that's where I'll put um, my watermelons and melons um, in a couple weeks um, when it's a little bit warmer. They really love the heat, and so it's kind of a continual cycle but everything's kind of on a slightly different cycle and so you just as you become familiar with things Mm -hmm. um, can know how to turn those things over and so ultimately nothing's really empty in the garden there's always like something growing and you don't have to do this but I do a lot of seed starting myself and so um, you can direct seed a lot of things but by starting them early kind of gets a jump so then you um, don't have any lag time, I guess, where things are sitting empty. Yeah. So I know you're big on, on seeds and seed starting, seed mm-hmm. swaps, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. When you do that, like what's, what are you starting right now in, in I, I'm guessing, small, tiny pots, not actually in the garden? Yeah. So actually a lot of what I'm planting now, I started way back at mm-hmm. Christmas. So the tomatoes and peppers and eggplants was kind of the week between Christmas and New Year's is when a lot of that was started. So now they're uh, like larger plants, um, six, eight inches tall ready to go in. Um, And then once I get kind of space inside my house um, (laughs) and move those things out, then I can start um, some other fun things um, like uh, roselle or loofah is a good one. Um, But uh, too, a lot of things are perfectly fine with just putting the seed directly in the ground, especially squash and melons and okra. Um, okay. That's another good one. Cool. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I know that, you, that the seasons are different here, right? Like your specialty your, your specialty is looking at planting in the Sonoran Desert. You've studied this in, in so many ways. And you, you published this thing recently that I thought was so interesting where you talk about the real seasons in Phoenix. Includes full spring, second winter, then uh, spring of deception. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what actual season are we in right now in Phoenix? So, I mean, you know, the calendar we're technically winter is what we're still in but for phoenix true spring really starts kind of mid to late february and so that's when the the days are longer for one but the nighttime temperatures are 45 to 50 mm-hmm. um, 55 degrees and we're no longer in that danger zone where it might dip to freezing um to 32 or lower um it's not impossible that we don't get a a frost and a freeze um, as late as March 15th that's happened historically hmm. um, in Phoenix. But um, the danger zone is kind of out. So because our spring is relatively short, because summer definitely is our longest season and definitely is coming, um, we want to take advantage as soon as we can that it's spring um, to get planting because a lot of, you know, our Phoenix summer is very different than the rest of the country. That's for and sure. so we're kind of a month before the rest of the country is still like in the dead of winter. Um, you know, it was like 80 something the other day. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and then the month of January kind of fluctuates a lot too. And that's where, you know, you may think it's spring, but then it'll hit and we get those cold 
cold nights again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that spring of deception. <laughs> um, spring of deception. And so uh, weather nerds like me, like you just watch and look at the forecast and see, okay, when is it go time? And it usually happens around February 20th. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh. February 20th is a good day to remember. Mm-hmm. We got a lot of rain, it seems, in the valley so far this winter, at least a good amount. How does that affect things and, and how much you need to water? Yeah. So um, the Sonoran Desert is a is a cycle where we get half of our rainfall in the winter and half in the monsoon season. Well, um, this last monsoon season, we hardly got anything. Mm-hmm. And so we don't get much in general anyway. We get, you know, six to seven inches if we're lucky. And so we really rely on the winter to replenish um, that soil moisture. Um, and so we do want to have at least three inches uh, of rainfall every winter. I don't know that we actually have gotten there yet. Um, it might rain next week, um, for example. And so all of that really replenishes the soil profile. And in general, in the winter, too, even if it's not raining, the days are shorter, the temperatures are just so much cooler. Mm-hmm. So you really don't need as much water. And so um, that's really beneficial that things will still grow things. But as we're warming up every day, we need to pump up the water um, to keep up with that. And so any amount of rain we get in the next month, um, of course, is is beneficial. But then April, May, June, extremely dry. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So pray for rain. Right. <laughs> we'll all do our rain dance. All right. That is Melissa Cruz, People Master Gardener and Educator. Joining us, Melissa Cruz, Peoples. Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Lauren. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.